Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. This week we are joined by John Higgs, an author who's appeared on Book Shambles before, but only on a short uh, Book Shambles Extra. And he was also part of one of our live Book Shambles panels at Latitude a couple of years ago. But this week he is in the studio proper with Robin and Beck Hill in the other co-hosting chair this week. Thank you as always to our Patreon supporters and if you would like to become a Patreon supporter, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledge as little as a dollar a month to support the show on there. All of the money we get from Patreon goes into paying for studio costs and all the things associated with producing the podcast are... Without your support, uh, we wouldn't be able to make Book Shambles. So thank you if you are a Patreon supporter. Thank you if you have been a Patreon supporter. And if you're not, uh, why not become one? You get extended episodes each week. Uh, We've got extra goodies on there as well, depending on what level you pledge at. And we've got uh, some new bits and bobs we're going to be launching in the new year as well for Patreon supporters. Uh, We often send out uh, special emails to our Patreon supporters, giving away tickets to live shows we do as well. Shows like Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, which is coming up in Salford and also London. Tickets on sale for that at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons for Robin and Josie and Beck and Matt Parker and Helen Chersky and Smitten and Susie Gage and Jim Elkaleely and Liz Bonin and Connie Huck and loads and loads of other people as well. And we are coming towards the end of Robin's Chaos of Delight tour uh, with support from She Makes War. Uh, Upcoming gigs uh, in Otley and Cardiff are sold out. There are still tickets for Newcastle, Edinburgh and Glasgow. So go to robinince.com for all of the details and ticket links there. And we should also mention our new podcast, Wife on Earth, from Joe Neary. Three episodes of that are out now, plus a couple of bonus mailbag episodes as well. Uh, in fact, episode two actually looks at John Higgs's most recent book. So after you've listened to John here on Book Shambles, uh, go and check out Wife on Earth. Cosmicshambles.com slash Celia, C-E-L-I-A, has all the links for that. Or you can just search for Wife on Earth wherever you listen to podcasts. And wherever you do listen to podcasts, don't forget to subscribe to Book Shambles, uh, review it five stars, rate it five stars on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out as well. Enough of that. On to this week's episode. Here is Robin and Beck and John. Hello, welcome to Robin and Beck's Book Shambles. Uh, I'm going to say that now because uh, Josie's yeah. just so she's just not turning up anymore. 
You've done more this year. So you're no longer playing the part of of Josie Long. Beck Hill plays Josie Long like in one of those daytime soap operas where someone suddenly changes, but only for a day. Yeah. Have you you've seen that? I know. Yeah, I know what you mean. Where where suddenly it's a different actor and you're like, hang on a minute. So great. I don't know if they've ever done that in the Australian soaps, as as in literally for a day or two. But when they Sunset Beach or whatever it was today, the part of Meg Hill will be played oh. by Samantha Ogden. And then the next day, it will be the Like same. an understudy. Literally, yeah, like Whoa. that. I've got an advert. I've got an advert for uh, uh, a new tooth shiner. Okay, you go off and do that. That'll make you money. Um, yeah, uh, Samantha, come over and you're playing her. Thank you. Wow. That's it. You're done now, Samantha. Off you go. Off you go. I don't Have the know. other go great. Shing. There we are. So I'm no, no, when Josie comes back, she'll have to be back. Yeah, she, she has, has to, to wear your shoes. Back. You don't have to wear her shoes anymore, which yeah. is good because I think your feet are slightly bigger. Yeah, they are a lot bigger than hers. Yeah, that was very uncomfortable for so long. Yeah, that that was what already a much lower kind of delivery, a much lower cadence coming from you. Yes, as opposed to the. I'm in less pain. <laughs> um, I'll just quickly mention. You've also set a precedent. So if Josie can be replaced, that means Robin can be replaced as well. <laughs> You could keep an eye out. I think you were going to say, I could be replaced. But no, yeah, you're right. That's how it works. I stay on, Mm. someone else, and we sort of leapfrog. Oh, yeah, I may well regenerate into something else. Excellent. Someone had a great point the other day, which is, by the way, sorry, it's going to be really rambling, this one, unlike, which again is me really doing Josie's job, because uh, I've taken a lot of cold cure and I've got kind of buckshot in my head, which the local radio station where I said I had buckshot in my head thought I said, said that I had buckfast in my head, which is, of course, uh, monk's booze, <laughs> yeah. which uh, my wife's grandmother was very keen Tonic on. And he kept wine. saying, that is monk's booze and therefore dangerous booze. She didn't listen. They have a little thing on the bottle, don't they? And it says, not for medicinal purposes. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. Yet it is. Not for drinking. It, is, yeah. Yeah. it carries yeah. you into a new monastery of existence, I think. Um, I was just going to quickly mention one of my favourite books that I've read since we last recorded this, and then I'm going to ask you, uh, mm. Beck, and then I'm going to ask our guest, who we still haven't announced yet, so you don't mm. know who that voice is. So you heard Keep that lovely guessing. voice. Keep guessing. Um, I've, just, I've never had Neil Elizabeth Taylor before, uh, the novelist, not the uh, actor. I genuinely think this would have perhaps affected her sales, because some people do say that she really was uh, Elizabeth Taylor's Mrs Palfrey at the Claremont is just it's the first uh, just incredible beautiful book about uh, an elderly woman who goes to live in one of those hotels where predominantly elderly people live uh, kind of one that I would imagine in certain squares in Bloomsbury and stuff like that and it's just it's about being old and love and loss and it's very funny at times and it's the 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 sadness is always beautifully judged it never becomes you know but i would highly recommend i, I mm. i've never read any of her work before i'm going to read another one but angel i think is the next one elizabeth taylor mrs Palfrey at the claremont is a, a very very beautiful novel um and uh, yeah the the lead character mrs Palfrey is, is is fantastic um what have you been reading since we were last doing this i've been reading i'm way behind but i've been reading uh, matt haig's uh, reasons to stay alive which has been uh, really interesting, but also because so much of it is the most of it of what I read so far is not reasons to stay alive. It's more what it's like living with depression, mm. and um, and that's been really. Fa- I wish I'd had that when I was growing up because now as an adult I look back and I realise that a lot of people who I was very close to and still am close to growing up suffer from depression and they didn't know and I didn't know and you go through life going what's wrong why can't you be happy and then now I'm reading it going oh my gosh oh my goodness I wish I'd had this growing up I would have been so much such better friend and such a better you know family member 
But um, yeah, it's it's an incredible book and and very uh, easy to read. Not that that should be a selling point, but for some people it is. Um, well, it's perfect. Yeah. Short journey stuff where you think I don't want to really get immersed in a novel or something like that. I don't want to go to Middle Earth on the mm. Piccadilly line, mm. and then you go, oh, okay, this is. You can read a couple of pages and you can go, oh, I see that now from that perspective. Mm. I think that it's a very interesting thing in terms of depression, anxiety and all those things where the more, like when I've been doing book events, in fact, I, I did one uh, last week uh, in uh, a lovely little uh, village near Haywards Heath and uh, it was, when you talk about these things on stage, even in a fun and silly way, it's very interesting what people then want to talk to you when you're doing the signing and stuff mm. like that. And still the number of people who come up and go, oh, I have not known until now that this was a, uh, that I'm not the only one. Yeah. And th- that is the thing that I still find remarkable, which it makes us realise how many of us are not, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the front that we put on. And that front is a real, I think very often that has a reality to it as well. It's not as if mm. the reality is merely the, 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 the melancholy or the anxiety. That's part of the reality. Mm. Um, but I think it's interesting how much of a cover is placed over that yeah. by so many people. Um, we're joined by John Higgs. Hello. Now, um, John Higgs is one of my, I can say this to his face, one of my favourite authors, uh, has written uh, at least three or four of my favourite books. Uh, he says that to every guest. I, every yeah. single yeah. one, yeah. yeah. He yeah. said it to me and but I haven't even written it. He says anything. it really sincerely. Yeah. Yeah. You almost yeah. believe it. It's great. John, I love your spy thrillers. And the, uh, oh, that, that's not your genre. I'm sorry, that must be the next guest who I love. Um, no, I, uh, for people who listen to we, we, we did a, we did a, a shorter uh, book, Shambles Round Your House, and talked about the, the book you wrote about why the KLF burnt a million pounds, which is... Mm-hmm. Where we first started communicating, really, around, around the time of that book, you sent me a copy of that. It was that's great. That's right. Yeah, that's going back a bit. Yeah. Yeah, and stranger than we can imagine. Yeah, which about the twentieth century. Still, for those who have not yet read this book, it's basically about the end of the being uh, a, a centre for humanity. That once quantum is that fair <laughs> enough to say? Once quantum mechanics comes along, there's no centres anymore. The omphalos is lost. Yeah, the omphalos is lost. That's definitely a way of saying it. Yeah, it's about the ra- that rise of. Um, uh, individualism, isolated individualism, just understanding the world through the, the 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 prism of just the individual, which is a real 20th century thing. And growing up in the 20th century, thing, you think, hey, that's perfectly normal. But um, you know, most of history, we, it was a hierarchical uh, worldview we had. And now in the 21st century, we've got this sort of networked worldview, and so we're seeing this real sort of culture class between. Those of us raised in the 20th century who see this isolated individualism uh, and Generation Z, you know, today's teenagers who understand the world through networks of relationships. Mm. Uh, and once you once you once you twig this sort of difference, this different way of seeing the world, so much of what's happening now makes so much more sense. Well, that's what I, I mean. One of the things I always use to, to sell it to people is your, your beautiful uh, analogy for wave particle duality, where you basically say that, you know, saying that something is both a wave and a particle behaves both as a wave mm-hmm. and as a particle is like saying something is a brick and a song. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful <laughs> way of putting it. And what I found so interesting about reading Strange Than We Can Imagine, the one thing it really changed for me was looking at early and mid, middle 20th century art because mm-hmm. so much of, as in painting and sculpture, seems to be a direct reaction to the, the falling apart of kind of a solidity. And uh, and that that was... So now when I go around galleries, I kind of go, oh, this surrealism is not as surreal as, yeah, I, you know, in absolutely. their mind's Art mind. is always how people see the world at that point. Mm. And, and when you look at the, the change of art throughout history... Then you you realise just how differently people people view the world. You know the idea that uh, painting a landscape was revolutionary. You know in, mm. in Constable's time or Turner's time, uh, seems odd to us. You know the people didn't realise that 
nature was beautiful until you know the age, the age of reason, the age of enlightenment. That seems very odd, but it's you know track it, tracking our understanding of how things are um, is is fascinating. I loved it and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But you've, you've, in between time, uh, William Blake now. I have, yes. Has, uh, which is a, a, a lovely, it's, it's like 70 pages just, it's just a looking wee essay, through yeah. uh, what William Blake should mean to us or can mean to us and the yeah. different things that he is. And um, the first thing I want to ask about is the book that I was reading this morning was Jacob Bronowski's biography of William Blake. Now, Jacob Bronowski is, is best known to people as, as one of the great science communicators uh, mm-hmm. for The Ascent of Man uh, on BBC and, and numerous other books and books of lectures about the value of science such a, and I, I'm often fascinated by someone who would not be considered to be you know many people oh Blake was just a mystic and he was mm. uh, you know a wonderful mystic but he hated reason he hated reason so much yeah. and yet those who are very often at the forefront of using reason and evidence mm. adore many of them adore William but William Blake pops up throughout so many different science books as a, as a reference Absol- to our view absolutely. of the universe. Well, it's weird because basically everyone adores him. That's the, that's the strange thing. Um, across all of society, you know, from the, the, the far-right flag-waving last night at the proms to, you know, uh, the English cricket team to the Women's Institute to uh, Billy Bragg to the Labour Party to the Conservative Party. It just... No one else appeals to everyone like this. It's very, very odd. It's very, very strange. Uh, you've probably seen the crowd around the Tate. It's just, it's just so mixed. It's so, so surprising. Um, and even all the, the press interest that this, this big review at the Tate in London has been getting has been so, so unanimously positive that you would have thought, oh, well, there must be a contrarian bugger somewhere <laughs> who's just going to say, well, this is all Emperor's New Clothes and, you know, it's all incomprehensible and enigmatic and it's all rubbish. No one has. Hang on. Just, Didn't that bloke from the BBC... Ah, didn't, yes, didn't, I know the one you're he thinking say, of. say, oh, there was too much. Only two stars out of five. He gave a three-star review. Will Gompertz. Uh, but in the review, he didn't have a, he didn't throw any shade on Blake at all. He was, all, oh, the Blake's amazing. But he was just sort of really angry with the Tate for, like, having <laughs> a red floor and all these strange sort of reasons why the, the, the exhibition was wrong in some way. But not the, the Blake. The Blake's amazing stuff. Right, but, so, but, like, but, seeing don't... a play but being like, oh, I didn't like the theatre. Yeah, basically. It was, it was very... <laughs> much like that. Mm. Um, the curtains. I mean, it was a super murder thriller, but I didn't like the curtains <laughs> yeah. around the French window. So that was really it ruined. Yeah, uh, because he's so he's he managed to sort of transcend so many things, so many um, uh, ways of looking at the world. That you, that whichever way you're coming from, from a scientific view, from a spiritual view, from an artistic view, from a just a political view, uh, you will find something to sort of latch onto. Uh, and even though he was very much against reason, he was it was it was that particular point in history where uh, sort of reason was trumpeting faith and and the the authority of the church was finally being sort of pushed aside and and reason was sort of coming in and he was absolutely for this pushing aside of this sort of authority of the church uh, but he just thought no hang on reason is um reason is a small component of the imagination uh, and what we really need is the full picture, the, the full size, you know, the, the imagination which reason grows in it. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of quotes of his that match things that like Einstein would have said, which uh, uh, as a quote in that book, I can't quite remember, but uh, about uh, the gist being that imagination is infinite and everything comes from it, including reason. You know, imagination is that one, what's it, with, with logic, you can go from A to B or A to Z with imagination, you can go anywhere you want. Which something is, yes, that's yeah. on the Some, side of the, like that, yeah. the library in Huddersfield on their stairwell ah. up to the art gallery. I highly recommend both the stairwell and the gallery and, and, li- the library, and libraries in, in general. All, all libraries elements in general of, of that yeah. building in Huddersfield. So, why do you? I mean, I, I don't give 
too much more about the book, but this is what I find so intriguing because something like Jerusalem, as you said, it's it's flag waving. Yeah, but the well, it's used is, in that in that but, sort of way. Yeah, yeah but. no, but that's what I mean. It, it, mm. Culturally, it can be used like that. Yeah, and and perhaps you, you you know that towards the right and all of that kind of thing, and yet it's lyrics. It's 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 poetry. Mm. Is 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 not in any way uh, in celebration of the mill owners. Absolutely. Um, and so, if you see it in context, then the introduction to Milton, which is where it comes from, uh, is pretty much a, a plea to sort of pull out the sort of the idiot children in politics and you know that the hirelings in court, the uh, just the just the incompetence sort of running thing and sort of overthrow them. Uh, and it's it's a call for having the the imagination to produce a better sort of world. So it's a, it's a cry for revolution. Um, and that can, I mean, it's often sort of said that. Oh, the right don't really like Blake. They just think they do because they don't understand, you know, mm-hmm. Jerusalem. That's that's often quite a bit. I kind of think that's that isn't actually fair. There is aspects to him uh, that I, you know, I can't give up on him as something that appeals to everyone. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of important to me at this this particular point when it's such a divided, you know, country that we um, and these these divisions look, you know, set like they could. You know, uh, once you get divided like this, it can be very hard to sort of, you know, reunite things. So finding things like Blake, which everybody sort of sees themselves as part of and sees, feels a connection to, uh, seems so important for the country going forward at the moment. You know, this is, this is, what, this is what we need. So what would you, um, what do you think, because he seems, he's certainly very anti-dogma. Yeah. As as it, and, 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 you know, uh, the, the, uh, an, an ultimate truth that will drive people into some form of sometimes, you know, terrifying banality. Mm. So wh- where do you think people, what's a good place to start in terms of... Mm. I would say read uh, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, a lot of people tend to start with uh, Songs of Innocence, which is basically the, the, the kids' song, the children's songs. It's sort of like it's sort of like being introduced to the Beatles via Yellow Submarine. You know, <laughs> you're not quite prepared for a day in the life, and you know the, the White Album or anything like that at that, that, at that sort of point. But um, a lot of the older ones, uh, sort of the later ones, the epics, Jerusalem, Milton, um, are pretty incomprehensible for, for for quite some time. But a Marriage from Heaven and Hell, it's just full of all these great sort of shocking. Uh, uh, statements, the you know the, the 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 road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. It's got all these great aphorisms of hell. Oh, see, I've never Bible read it, but that it's just great. He's mm. just, uh, I mean, the, the title, the marriage of heaven and hell. Mm. That's quite some. That's quite some title. The importance of um, opposites to him, contraries, as he as he calls them, about about having both sides. Um, he's much more interested in the dynamic between contrary points of view. Than he is the particular points of view, and mm. he he does so in a way that's not sort of like a proto postmodern. Oh, all these points are valid. Um, and it came to mind when I was reading uh, one of Nick Cave's latest um, Red Hand files, which are always amazing, which are always brilliant. But he sort of came very close to sort of saying, well, fascists, anti-fascists, it's pretty much the same. It was it was verging towards that. I'm, I'm possibly doing Nick Cave a slight disservice, hmm. but it was. Well, no, I, th- I think yeah, it is quite close. Yeah. I mean, when you say, interesting, when you see some of the people who are lauding that most recent one, ah, and yes. they are various rather unpleasant internet institutions. Yeah. Okay. Um, and also, they don't quote everything in there. But I think you're right. There are moments where you, you, it does. I think have that equilibrium. Yeah. Well, Blake uh, is able to look at the these these countries and dynamics uh, and and understand the importance of both sides, while still, you know, uh, being very sort of pro, you know, the good. You know, it's it's and and using the dynamic as. Um, 
uh, as a way of moving yourself forward, as uh, showing the way, showing where, how, what we should become, you know, how to improve and, and, and you know, create this sort of better world. Uh, these things are guides to us, you know, the, the, the clash between fascists and anti-fascists, that would be a guide to sort of orientate yourself by. Uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It's really, really fascinating stuff. Um, and the, because that's, that's the big book that I'm trying to write at the moment, which is called William Blake versus the World. It's a real sort of deep dive into his head and just trying to understand what, what he was thinking and how he understood the world. Because there's a bit of a gap of that. I mean, the, the, the Tate exhibition, it's like, here's the art he produced, you know. Uh, and it's kind of enigmatic because it's, it's, you don't, it's, it's hard to understand his, 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 his mythology and, and things like that. But you can just admire the results. You can just go, oh my God, this is glorious. This is this is lovely. But when you really go into a deep dive into how he thought and how he sort of saw the world, oh man, it just it reveals so much. Um, it's such a it's just a useful perspective uh, on the world. Um, so yeah, this is the book I'm writing at the moment. You know, you know my KLF book. Mm. Not really about the KLF at all, really, no. was it? It's sort of like uh, I'll pretend it's about the KLF, but hey, let's talk about the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. William Blake's just—it's <laughs> like that on steroids. It really is. Uh, so yeah, it's great stuff. Well, that's what, what I find interesting as well. Is that for someone, you know, a, a lot of the reading some of the older biographies, in particular from from the earlier part of the 20th century, mm. there's uh, a, a sense that he was entirely forgotten, barely known. But yeah. And yet, if that is true, what I find fascinating is the ability to piece together so much of his life, the fact that so yeah. much of his art still exists. Mm. The fact that so... It seemed, looking around the Tate exhibition, like there was in sometimes a slight contradiction mm. between the uh, that, that kind of, you know, the, the, the image of... The, the noble image of the entirely lost artist. Yeah. And actually an artist who... There were certain people who... Uh, you know, it, it, th th those who um... we were sort of lucky that in the last ten years of his life, a sort of new generation came up and and sort of befriended him, uh, and looked up to him as this sort of you know this great mage or or, or whatever, and started collecting his work and uh, and it sort of left his life on a happy ending because the fifteen years or so before, after he got back from from Felpham in Sussex. That's when he had that exhibition that, uh, you know, he didn't sell anything and he only had that one review that called him an unfortunate lunatic. And uh, that's and when he... didn't he, like the curtains. And, and they didn't like <laughs> the curtains. The curtains were all wrong. Yeah. Um, it, 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 that's... And you see in his notebooks at the time, there's a lot of... He's a lot of slagging off people and, 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 mm. and bitching about various friends and things like that. That day he does feel... Um, Lost. He, feel, he feels lost at that sort of point. And what's integral to a lot of his work when you read it is the, the value, the importance of uh, relationships, of, of friendships. It's a, it's a side of it that we sort of, we overlook a lot because a lot of how we see Blake comes from how we uh, saw him in the 20th century. I was talking earlier about that sense of understanding things as individuals and looking at it through that sort of lens. And so so when in the 60s in particular, when Aldous Huxley, Allen Ginsberg, you know, people like that started looking at Blake, it was the, uh, it was the sexual liberation, it was the anti-authoritarianism, it was the new age sort of stuff that they, that they latched onto. But there's, there's a lot more that speaks to the 21st century, I think. Uh, I was talking about how we now understand the world in terms of networks of relationships. You know, he'd say things like um, uh, the bird, a nest, the spider, a web, man, friendship. You know, we, that's where we should live. That's where we live in, in, in groups of people. Um, uh, and, and, and the fact that he had that again at the end of his life, uh, 
meant you know was 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 so important because he really he really understood that that was what was valuable about life was relationships um and because of that so i've gone around in a big big long loop because of lot because of those friendships he had at the end of his life there were people sort of preserving his stuff uh and there were just enough people to sort of you know uh survive to keep it for for today I like you. You write a chapter which is kind of uh, placing Tracy Emin uh, next to uh, William Blake, and you yes. talk about various different ideas, and then you just have this lovely kind of turnaround where you go. But that said, uh, she was someone who said, "Oh, why do I have to pay so much tax? It's unfair." And then you kind of go. So, so that's an interesting journey. Because I slightly toned down that, down that, that uh, chapter. Oh, the, the original draft was deemed to be a bit a bit harsh on Tracy. Yeah. So that's the nice thing. <laughs> so I have to admit, um, my favourite work of hers is her um, autobiography. Uh-huh. Uh, I think Strangeland uh-huh. is is uh, is fantastic. It's really interesting about growing up in Margate, and it's, and, and it's probably my favourite thing that she she's ever done. Uh-huh. But yeah. uh, no, it's an, it, again that bit of how many different things you can be to so many people. I was kind of as I was going through the chapter, I was thinking, where's this going to win? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about a thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month, and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. We should... uh also talk about your other book the the longer book you brought out this year yes oh yeah, yeah. You get a lot, which is uh, just quickly the future starts here mm-hmm. which is uh about, well the, the, it starts off with an algorithm that's been invented initially to try and uh replace, me. Uh, replace you so yeah. that's something that basically creates the john higgs sentences yeah but yeah no it's a friend of mine um an artist uh, goes by the name shardcore do you know shardcore have you, have you come across him at some gig in canterbury yeah, he's got pointy up hair so he's easy to spot in crowds like the shard like the shard, yeah. Mm. Maybe they copied it from him. I don't know. I'm not sure which was first. Um, but he just decided to take it upon himself to sort of build an AI and feed every book I've ever written into the AI. The theory being that he would be able to then press a button and it would just churn out a book in the style of me, uh, and uh, and he could make up some money, but or, or something like that. Um, yeah, the money bit was optimistic. But, yeah. <laughs> that was very. But it was. It became a really useful way of looking at AI, not to not only just to say, hey, look. At these amazing things that AI can do, but also it really illustrated what AI can't do, because there's a lot, there's a lot of hype um, around these sort of subjects, and it can come from like yeah, people who should know better, like science journalists and mm. CEOs of, of, of companies, and, um, and quite often those things that go around where they say, "Oh yes, this AI is churning out recipes," and yeah. usually it's it's not actually it's an AI. Not, it's yeah, a, absolutely. There's so so many fake things. Like yeah, we fed all these adverts to something and it made this script. And yeah, you just it's go, essentially no, Mad it Libs. No, it didn't. Yeah, just, just making that up, mate. Um, well, isn't it the infinite monkey thing, which is the bit they don't take into account? Is very often there's a program which every time that you reach a bit of the structure that would be a sentence from Shakespeare, uh-huh. it kind of marks it. Whereas, of course, that's not an infinite monkey thing. An infinite monkey yeah. thing is not that it's it's a, a growing, uh, you know, mm. yeah. it's just that bang, 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 eventually an infinity or immediately Absolutely, infinity, depending on which way you want to look at it, then it turns up. It's not down to an, an improving program that keeps going nearly a yeah. recipe, nearly a recipe, nearly a recipe, <gasps> crumble. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yes. The infinity that, that kind of matters there, yeah. Mm. But in, term, in terms of AI, uh, well, sure, it's, you know, if you give it a goal, it's getting better and better at doing that goal. But it isn't, isn't getting anywhere closer to, like, 
deciding its own sort of goal. And because mm. you grow up with, you know, Terminator movies and things like that, and the idea that, oh, one day it's just going to decide to maybe I'll wipe out humanity. Maybe that's what I should be doing. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll wipe out humanity for some reason. And for some reason, I can't be unplugged. You know, that's 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 our sort of understanding of, of AI. It has no concept that we exist. It has no concept that it exists. It has no concept that anything sort of exists. It's just this little, this pattern in this neural network, just, just you know, uh, endlessly sort of fluctuating and sort of changing. Uh, it cannot set its own goals. Mm. Uh, because to set its own goals, it has to understand the, the world in which those goals would sort of sort of take place. Um, and, and once you understand that aspect of AI, um, all the, the sort of the uh, hysteria about it's going to take over and kill everyone, and, and you know it's we're going to be doomed, and this super intelligence is going to is going to appear, just looks a little bit far fetched on, <laughs> on many sort of levels. But there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who sort of genuinely believe in this sort of this rapture of the nerds, this singularity that's going to occur. That the, mm. it, they are creating a god, as far as they're concerned. It's just a very, very, you know, a incomprehensible sort of type of god. I think, yeah. for want of a better word, yeah. Well, the first, one one of your comments quite early on in the book is that you would imagine that if a machine did become self conscious, the first thing it would do would be to switch itself off. Yeah, which is a very <laughs> short line to the myth of Sisyphus, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because AI is used for the most sort of tedious jobs, like arranging your Facebook sort of feeds or working mm. out what you should be watching on, on Netflix. It's very it's very good at doing things that um, either we can't do. It's, it needs it's been much too fast to sort of uh, I say identify faces in 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 so much video data and stuff like that at football grounds. It can do that sort of thing that we can't do. So that's it. So it's great when it can do something we can't do. But most of what it's used for is things that we could do. It's just too dull. Yes. It's just too too dull for humans to sift through the data and, and do all that sort of do stuff. Do you not find that a little bit worrying though when it? comes to the fact, like uh, looking at um, self-service checkouts as, yeah. a, as an example, yeah. for the idea that automation will eventually get to the place where it's no longer worth supporting the people yeah, who do ab- those jobs. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, Self-service checkouts are kind of funny because we think it's like automation, but really it's just making the customers do the actual work. Yeah, you know, there's very yeah. little difference between the tills as they were with, you know, that... <laughs> That that uh, with people sitting behind them working mm. uh, until without them, um, techno- technology technology wise, they're very very similar. Um, but um, yeah, I mean that is absolutely uh, the the way it can be used uh, uh, for affecting people's livelihoods and stuff is important. But you sort of realise that it is a tool, and as with any tool, it's the person who deploys it is responsible. Mm. So you always sort of know that it's someone's fault that mm. it's been used in a negative way. The idea that, oh, it's just AI, we can't control it, there's nothing we can do, yeah, yeah. that sort of goes out the window. Mm. When AI is used in a sort of negative way, there's, there's, there's someone behind that, man. There's someone that's someone's there's fault. There's an Oz. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's, there's someone to go after, yeah. Mm. Did you start this book as an act of optimism? Did you start thinking... Well, because as, as you say in the introduction, you you uh, when when we were growing up, we had John and I similar age. John's a bit younger than me, but it's um, that 
the, the the future is still apart from nuclear Armageddon, which mm. was the the one downside, which was then obviously replaced by that, HIV, that was then replaced by climate change. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's always something to kill us if you have that particular pessimistic you know bent, and I do. Sure. But um, but there was a sense that things were improving. Certainly, the post-war, there's Absolutely. a certain point in the 1960s, white heat of technology, all of that. We're going to go to the moon. We're going to go to mm. Mars. Uh, food's going to be easy to grow. Absolutely, uh, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now we've hit that point where it seems that there's a, a line that's drawn and then you go and then partly due to all the things that we've created to improve our lives mm-hmm. we also then end up with a bit of blowback from that and you go oh the, like like introducing cane toads to Australia mm. this will get rid yeah. of the problem we now seem to have a problem <laughs> yeah. with cane toads oh, now the old lady has to eat a spider to eat the fly yeah. <laughs> and guess she'll die yeah absolutely it seemed to be in the 80s it seemed to be at some point in the 80s we sort of gave up on the, on, on the concept of the future uh, and you know Previously, um, we'd imagined positive futures and negative futures, and that seemed to nicely sort of balance things. It was things like the 1960s Star Trek. I always like in the um, in the Futurama World Fair at Flushing Meadows in, in New York, uh, they buried a, a time capsule uh, for 5,000 years. It was going to be opened in the year uh, 2,439 or something like that. Just that, just. The idea that they were thinking, oh, in 5,000 years' time, the people will be curious what we're up to now. They were thinking about 5,000 years' time as a, a thing that's bound to happen and there'll be people around and it's going to be fine. It just feels so different. 5,000 or 500? 5,000. Wow. Yeah, 5,000 years. Um, we just don't... That, it's shocking now, isn't mm. it, to think what will be around in that, in that sort of time. In fact, the last positive vision of the future in a Hollywood film that I can find uh, in a mainstream Hollywood film this is, is Bill and Ted's excellent yeah. <laughs> and they just go yeah it's, it's pretty much like now but it's got better water slides right yeah. that was the last last time we could sort of come up with with something you know and idiocracy is the most precise yeah, I think, oh, in terms yeah. Of judges, absolutely yeah. but I mean it just felt that um the the sort of the, the cloud of doom over the um, over our culture just was suspicious to me. It, mm. it, it was it was just un, it was just unquestioned and, and taken for granted, uh, and it, it seemed to be when there were positive things coming and, and you know positive events and positive changes, they were, we were just. We just failed to see them. We just couldn't see them. It was yeah. just the default assumption of doom. Uh, I just, I was suspicious of. I was just very, very suspicious of. And you can't, um, you can't just go, hey, well, let's all just be optimists because you know, blind optimism is just, you know, that's going to crash into reality very, very, very quickly. Mm. But it is more rational. Um, to have a pragmatic optimism than to just assume a pessimistic point of view because an optimistic mindset will you know, find all sorts of possible solutions for a problem when the pessimistic mindset just won't even bother. They just, just think there's no point, you know. So That's what I liked about the message of Tomorrowland. It was uh, the idea yes. that you yeah. should be presenting people with a, a positive future to be hopeful for and work towards yeah. rather than yeah. having everyone assume that it's going to go terribly and then there's an inaction definitely definitely but you need then to really sort of uh study these things you Mm. need to you need to examine these things you need to really know about climate change and biodiversity collapse and inequality and things like that 
in order to find a way to move forward. But mm. having the sort of you know pragmatic sort of mind, I loved. Um, so I, well, I, I, I noticed I, I was looking down, and the, the first book you brought some books along for the because uh, uh, this is what the show is meant to be. But we never really get around <laughs> to it. Now, we talk about other, we talk about the, in, the, in the a guesswork. Fit, a fit of optimism, I just thought maybe we'll talk about. Yeah, books. let's I do it. Um, but one book I read recently, which was fantastic, and everyone should read it, is The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. But let me just there's a there's a sentence on page fifteen. Um, this, this is the where, where's page 15 oh, after, th- after 14 I think. <laughs> uh, so this is the uninhabitable earth that's the title of the book it is unlikely that climate change will render the planet truly uninhabitable so which is you know I, I can kind of see the um, the arguments of the publishers at this this sort of uh, stage because he, he, he's writing things like well it's, the earth's not going to be completely uninhabitable and they go well, let's call it the uninhabitable earth uh-huh. and he's going I'm not really sure that's a good idea they're going well maybe we could call it like die 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 earth apocalypse and he's going okay maybe uninhabitable earth is a better, <laughs> sort of, better sort of move well that's the Martin Rees thing I'm sure I've mentioned to you before where Martin Rees uh, astronomer royal uh, wrote a book which I think called Our Final Century yes, and, yes. Uh, and I think in America it's called something like Our Final Week because they went, no one will care. That's hundred years away. Who cares yeah. about this, this century? Next week, Tuesday. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus. So and does that ob- deal with? Ob- Sorry, go on. Obviously, parts of the, the planet are going to be uninhabitable fairly soon. These are quite sort of you know inhabited parts and stuff like that. You know, not to. So not is to... he referring to humans there? He's not yeah. really saying about because obviously life on Earth will continue yeah. until it becomes. Yeah, there will be a point where it's. Uh, I mean, once the sun's thrown into a red giant, we you know that's really going to be <laughs> yeah that uh, yeah he's not he's not thinking on those sort of yeah. times. Scales, but Clash of the know, galaxies, that could be an issue. You know, but uh, it will be, uh, you know, when it's, if if you're talking about, you know, people just lurking around Canada and nobody sort of living in sub traffic, you know, Africa, that's, that's going to be a very, very traumatic change for the for the world and, and things like that. Uh, it's not to, it's not to play down uh, the reality of, of what's happening if we are on course for something like a 3.7% Increased by the end of the century, which is what we sort of seem to be. That's you know, very, very serious. But uh, just, I just found that funny that uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's, well, obviously it won't be uninhabitable <laughs> in the book, The Uninhabitable Earth. Um, what's happening now is that the, the, the next generation are sort of coming along and they just, whereas we would sort of say, well, there's no point, I can't do anything, you know. They, they're thinking, well, what can we do? It's it's just a shift in in, in the way they, they're thinking. What really sort of brought this home to me was that campaign for uh, Burger King to stop putting those plastic toys in with the kids' mm. meals, which are just rubbish and they're thrown away and they can't be recycled and all that sort of stuff. And to their, their great credit, Burger King said, "Yeah, we'll stop doing that. We'll put some recycling facilities and uh, for them." But it was just it was an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old who who were behind that that mm. campaign, and the notion of children are campaigning not to be given toys yeah. just struck me as just really so because in in the, the the future starts here book i talk about this great shift this great shift between the millennials and generation z and there's a whole load of data about it and it's 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 a it can't be stopped it's a huge huge uh, cultural change that's that's ongoing but if i was to say oh and you know that children would sort of you know campaign not to be given toys it would have looked insane you know mm. there's no way i'd have been able to get away with that as an example there's a, a sort of thing that would sort of happen but that's that's the sort of thing that's that's happening and you know these these people are now um entering the electorate and you know the 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 
other side, the much more uh, baby boomers, the uh, who are much more individualistic, they're sort of leaving the electorate. Uh, so there is a real sort of change in attitudes uh, coming, and it can't be stopped. And what we are living through now, it is kind of the last thrash of the dragon's tail. Uh, I mean, and and you know, I don't wish to, you know, a dragon's tail can do a lot of damage. Don't get me wrong, but the. The sense of, you know, walls, not bridges, that that, that sense of seeing th- things as... Uh, it's very, very much an individual's belief that they can be... that they should be a part from Europe. And it's very, and if you're raised understanding the world in terms of a network of relationships, it seems insane. Of course, you should think... think that, you know, so there's this real sort of age difference in, in arguments like that. Um, but the importance of climate change is so obvious to the generation coming through. And they're, they're thinking, oh, OK, we've left it this late. We're going to have to stop taking transatlantic flights and eating meat. So, OK, that's what we'll do. Um, and the we being sort of important in that. And there's a, in this... I've got a Yancey Strickler book down here. Uh, he's the guy who set up Kickstarter, and he talks a lot about the um, 30-year rule. This is his book, uh, book about... It's called This Could Be Our Future. And he talks about how when something first appears and it's radical and on the cutting edge and something, it takes 30 years for it to be absolutely normal and just the way everything is. So that's the case for, um, you know, recycling or hip hop or going to the gym or something like that. But it's also the case when it's screamingly obvious, right, that the new thing has to has to be uh, paid attention to. And he he cites the um, uh, example of Joseph Lister who in, in the, the mid-1900s, uh, the mid-1800s, um, if you were going to have surgery, you were probably going to die from infection. That's mm-hmm. what happened. People died from infection. And Lister said, hey, hang on, I've got this, got this notion it might be to do with these germs that Pasteur has just discovered. Maybe if we washed our hands and cleaned our knives, mm. there'd be no infection. And he proved it. You know, he, he, he was able to phys- actually prove this. But it, yeah, to the medical profession, they were like, get gone. You know, they were mm. not having it. They were really angry and he was sort of, really pushed aside until 30 years had gone and another generation came up who had no skin in the game and they just looked at the facts and went, oh, we should probably wash our hands and, 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 peop- and people would be saved. Uh, and it seems odd that these people were denying this or, or so angry or so... Um, or would be refusing to, you know, clean their knives and, and wash their hands. It just seems so bizarre mm. to us. But you have to realise that if you take on board what he's telling you, then the, there's, a, there's an element of blame there, that it's the surgeons that were causing the death of these people. So they couldn't kind of live with that, because in their view of themselves, they were saving people, even though they all died. They yeah. saw themselves as trying to save people. The idea that actually, no, they're the ones killing people, they just, they just couldn't accept it. So there's this real sort of sense of, sense of denial. Uh, and and in all in the, in the, you know the absolute lack of any mention of climate change in the last two or three general elections is exactly mm. that sort of thing. It's the it's the denial. There's no push from the older generation to uh, to tackle these things um, because kind of, they're the ones going on the holiday and they're the ones with a big car and you know they they have to accept that hey I am you know this is this is on me. Mm. It's kind of a, a, a tricky thing to do. Uh, and when I was talking about that practical optimism that's the sort of thing you have to do you have to understand these things and and, and also you know 
take them in and, and accept the blame and, and realise you're sort of part of the sort of problem. Uh, but as I say, fortunately, this generation is growing up who are just going, well, for God's sake, we've got to sort this out. You know, mm. we've got it. We've got to change our, uh, our electricity system. We've got, uh, get a, uh, we've got to get the politicians who will act, you know, and they are absolutely prepared to stop eating meat and, and stop flying. And, and you see it with the... Um, the, the Greg's vegan sausage roll is a fantastic yeah. example. You know, when it came out, the Piers Morgans of the world, they were just up in art. They were furious. They were just, you know. But were they? See, this is a thing that I'm not sure about. Even if Piers, I, I, even if Piers was, there was a I, general I never, sort of Yeah, reaction. there certainly was. Yeah. You know, veganism yeah. does seem to get... Everyone tells me about these awful vegans that harangue them. Yeah. But very rarely. I mean, there are some. I've never you know, been harangued by but a vegan. Yeah. most of my yeah. vegan friends yeah. are, you know, they don't really harangue. They're not that bothered. No. They're but, kind of, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't have to be a full-time vegan. But well, if you do it for a couple of days, that's all right. Thank you. you yeah, know, yeah. yeah. Better but what, than nothing. What, what happened then was Greg's then had to make a, an earnings call to all their investors saying, hey, hang on, we're, we're earning a lot more money than we're expecting. We have to warn you now ahead of the next results. We're earning a lot more money. It's these vegan sausage rolls and, you know, we're going to do a vegan donut. And then they had to make another call a few weeks later going, listen, we're making so much more money than we're expecting because of these vegan sausage rolls and we're going to do vegan everything. <laughs> you know, the, 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 there was no... The, people being just shocked by the... the Demand for the the appeal and 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 in, in all sort of fast food things, it's 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 vegan things. They are delicious as well. And two, they're really nice. Oh yeah, I really had one. Good. It was really I, and I, I specifically did. went to Greg's to try it. Yeah, not a vegan, but yeah. wanted to and yeah, was was uh, impressed with how tasty it they're was. They're kind of suspiciously nice, aren't they? <laughs> there must be something going on. They're re- they are really good. Oh, so it's like you're seeing a Sweeney from... Todd version. Yeah, made from <laughs> Where, vegans. Yeah, 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 maybe. yeah. But you know, the, for for most of our generation, the idea that uh, a, a vast number of people could start eating, you know, plant based diets just seems ludicrous. Yeah, but, it, but it's happening. It's absolutely happening. Well, we've almost run out of time. So d- just tell us the other. You have the world turned upside down by Christopher Hill, which is uh, oh, quite, I've never read the book about the English Civil War. Is, is the uh, well, Marxist it's, take it's on it? More about the sort of radical ideas before it, um, right? Uh, which feeds feed into Blake in, in quite a lot of ways. The ranters, the, the levelers, the diggers, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's a slice of history that um, you're not taught. That you're just not taught. Um, and there's, there seems to have been a wee period around 1640s where there was no censorship, uh, and so we do still have pamphlets. From, from this like t- uh, two decade sort of period about what people were talking about, what sort of thinking. It's very, very different to what you know the Oxbridges and the Cambridge are recording of history. You know, it's it's a real insight into into um, into the, the genuine thought that was what was going on in this country. Uh, yeah, it's great. It's really good. That I re- really recommend. The world turns upside down. I should down read that because I'm, I'm a big fan of Howard Zinn, who wrote mm. the People's History of the United States of America, which was uh, the the take on as opposed to the generals and the uh, you know the, the the victors and the decorated and the the noble. Um, and that's oh, and you've got one right at the bottom. Before we we will get to Jason Arnott's book. Don't you worry. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Uh, are you looking at Dreaming the Beatles by yeah. Bob Sheffield? It's fantastic. Have you read this? No. The great thing about Beatles books is, I mean, there must be more Beatles books than there are books. It feels yeah, there's like certainly that. more there's, Beatles there's, books there's, than Beatles. Yeah, that's for sure. That's a definite statistic. You kind of would think people ran out of things to say about the Beatles at this point. And, and you know, Mark Lewisham is doing the 
his, the big history, which is you know over a thousand pages, and the, the first volume, and they only get up to the end of nineteen sixty two and release their first single, and then you know it will be twenty years before he finishes this this big big mm-hmm. thing. But as um, as we get further and further away from the Beatles. We're starting to really sort of understand that. Oh, hang on, yeah, this is that wasn't just another band, was it? This this was much more important, much more significant. It's kind of like um, uh, it's like it's the difference between Shakespeare and like Tudor theatre, you know. And, and mm. Tudor theatre, sure, that's a very interesting subject, and you know, uh, if it was your kind of thing, you'd find a lot uh, to say about it. But you know, Shakespeare is so much bigger, and, and Shakespeare change the soul of the English-speaking world and Shakespeare mm. is, is is the significant sort of thing. Uh, I think the Beatles and, you know, the late 20th century rock and pop is, is a similar sort of relationship sort of, sort of brewing. Um, and so books about the Beatles keep changing as, as we get further away and we get more and more perspective. And I just really loved uh, this Rob Sheffield book, Dreaming of the Beatles. Uh, it's really just about what it's like to, to, to love, you know, music. Uh, and the impact it, it has on, I think, it's it's a much more personal sort of book than than a lot of the others. Um, mm. Yeah, that's really good. And um, and your final one, Ghost by Jason Arnott. Yeah, uh, who he, has an amazing uh, collection of VHS videos, I believe. He has a, a house that basically looks like a uh, a rental store in nineteen eighty seven. Yeah, absolutely, but only a really dingy one that only has like not preserved horror films. Yeah, in all you would love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, did you read um, his previous book, The Last Day of Jack Sparks? It was, no, it's really high on the pile. I've been meaning to read it for ages, and I picked it out again yesterday, actually. I've well, got a... the, what's, what's great about his, his horror books is that he seems to have found a way to write horror books in the modern world. You know, in the way that, say, um, Frankenstein was sort of like the, sort of the dark shadow of the Age of Enlightenment, that sense mm. that we've become the book of gods, or Dracula was the dark shadow of the Victorian thing with the repressed sexuality and, and things like that. He seems to have found a way to write a horror that's about now, that's the dark shadow of, of, of now. Because um, uh, a lot of horror... I mean, you've got that um, Hamlin book of horror there. And yes. It, but the, the, the role of um, nostalgia and, um, you know... It's it's horror seems to be a thing set away from here. Uh, he did he did it once with Jack Sparks, but Ghoster is um, it's very it's very different. But he's done it, he's done exactly the same thing again. He's made it very very relevant. It's about this uh, paramedic uh, called Kate who, on a whim, uh, has a whirlwind romance and is going to move from Leeds to Brighton to move in with this guy she just met, and she and she packs up her job, and she moves everything down, and she gets to his flat, and it's entirely empty, and he's just vanished, and he's all sort of gone, but she's got his mobile phone, and that's the only sort of way she can sort of find out the, the, the story of him. Uh, and needless to say, it just becomes absolutely god-awful, terrifying sort of... Um, uh, I think yeah. Uh, it, I might make it because it's nearly Halloween. Because mm. I am only reading books by female novelists, but I may well over Halloween allow myself that. Yeah, um, that would be good. John, thank you very much. Uh, John's bigger book for 2019, The Future mm-hmm. Starts Here, is available now. Uh, William Blake now, which is just a, it's, it's a it's a beautiful um, essay, and uh, you can also pick it up if the Tate Britain shop is packed with your books and Stuart Lee's yeah. uh, and some other authors as well. Uh, Beck, have you got anything you'd like to plug for end of October, beginning of November? Uh, yeah, November eighth, uh, we're bringing out the show I talked to Edinburgh Fringe about the future ah. called I'll Be Back ah. uh, on uh, Liver L I. 
MyVR, which is a platform where uh, you pay six quid a month and you get sent a little plastic headset. If you don't own an Oculus, you put your phone in there and you can oh. watch my show as if you're sitting in the front row. Cool. You can like spend the, the entire future. hour that looking at the, the audience if you want. Brilliant. Is the I'll be back a Terminator it, AI yeah, coming so to kill I'll you be back. Uh-huh. I'll be back. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's a little, little pun. She's very good on her puns. What's your Halloween oh, name at the moment? I can't remember. Oh, I think it's Beck Hill or Be Killed. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, I'm still on tour with the Chaos of Delight show and then also coming up to Manchester with, uh, we're going to do one of our nine lessons or two of our nine lessons uh, and carols for curious people and also check out, we've announced some more acts who are joining us for uh, the Sea Shambles show next year at the Albert Hall, including uh, Lem Cisse and also British Sea Power. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge to support the show. Robin has already mentioned a few of the live shows we've got coming up, so I'm not going to mention it again. Have yourself a great week, and we will be back with a new episode of Book Shambles next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.